Hey folks, welcome to the Wild Podcast. This is Dylan here. So I'm sitting in Larry Woodrow's uh, living room, and it's uh, sometime in uh, March. And uh, I've been thinking about one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is I, I'm really lucky to have friends like Larry and and Jeff, who I think have both been on the podcast, uh, or at least made cameos on previous um, episodes. And uh, but I'm lucky to have these guys in my life because they're so full of knowledge and, and they're, they've been my hunting mentors and fishing mentors and just great characters and, and well, just good friends. And I, I was just, I thought it'd be just good value to be you know, a good thing to do just to record some of the stories and histories um, that these guys have lived. And uh, so we're doing it now and I got an hour or so with, with Larry and um, anyways, Larry's sitting here. Hey, Larry. Hi, Dylan. You coming through on the mic microphone okay? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. So, so we were just, I do this every time. We, we kind of like already just talked about fishing for 20 minutes and I was like, oh, super interesting conversation around uh, starting out fishing. And then, of course, here I am. I'm like, oh, we should put a mic on and like, and we should really capture that first 20 minutes. But um, there's so many things we can talk about, Larry. I, I, want, I was thinking on the way over here, I was like, oh, well, I, right now I'm thinking about, you know, this is that adventure hunting planning season. For me, and I started to schedule out um, all my all my adventures that I want to do, and um, but of course, that I'm calling you pretty regularly, talking about well, what about this river drainage, and what about accessing here, and if you've ever been up there. Um, but uh, before, well, that's one thing we could talk about. But maybe we'll. But we were just talking about fishing and herring. Um, we were. Uh, I was thinking about. This weekend, we were actually talking about going uh, uh, and looking for the herring spawn. Have you ever seen the the, her- the herring spawn? You... Sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. Clinging, clinging to all the seaweed and branches. I've seen the First Nations indigenous eating it raw, stripping it from <laughs> cedar and hemlock boughs. Oh, when they're sitting down in the water? Yeah. Well, they just grab, they're out there gathering it. Off uh, French Creek, yeah, it's a, they, they were there. So the so the the spawn itself is the it's the it's the eggs that the females oh lay. What were you yeah. referring to? Yeah, that's, that's what, what you're I mean. referring yeah. to. Yeah, the eggs yeah. the eggs on the yeah on yeah the, yeah rich. I did, I haven't tried it. I guess I should have by now, but I've not not tried it. I had a friend come over. A friend of mine from um, Bella Bella uh, came over for dinner, and he brought uh, a bag of uh, of roe. That he that, mm-hmm. that he'd harvested his his uh, his, his wife is Heltzik, and uh, he was invited to participate in the in the harvest, and they brought down a bag of herring eggs, and uh, yeah, it was it was interesting. We like had it on toast, spread it on toast, and it was it was good. It took like the first bite was pretty intense, and then once yeah. you kind of you know allow it, you know, let the you know just kind of get used to it and mellow into it. It's just really good. Yeah. Well, we're in the middle of the row herring fishing or fishery right now uh, that's going on, I guess, between Comox and, and Parksville. Yeah, we were, um, uh, Will, our friend Will, uh, had this idea that he wanted to spend this weekend uh, uh, leaving from the Sunshine Coast where he keeps his boat, and then we were going to go and find the schools of herring. And uh, and then he, I guess he bought a, a throw net, like a 10 it's like a 10 foot round thing you fling it out there so it weight it weights around the edges of the net and i guess it drops down around the yes. school of fish and then you yeah sane them right draw the string on the bottom and then it, you'll have a ball of herring inside of the net um anyways that was our plan for this weekend and maybe go drop the prawn traps and goof around well Laskiti and and wherever and maybe get all the way over to the the east coast where they where they typically spawn the herring that is um so we we consulted with our friend Jeff Horsefield, who's a, a commercial fisherman. He used to used to be used to have a herring license to to catch herring, and he um, told us a few things. Well, one probably the main thing is that uh, this is actually not the time of year you want to catch herring if you want to eat them. No. Yeah. This is the roe fishery. Yeah. So the I guess all the. Um, all the fat and everything gets 
drawn basically drawn into the into the row into the row yeah so all the nutrition's in there yeah so anyway so we're our plan has been is going to have to revise I wanted to just go get a bucket of herring so that we have it for halibut season and well the the the, the herring that we uh, cure a pickle pickled herring every year is I I belong to a group of uh, of friends who grew up in Port Alberni, and they do a pickle herring night before Christmas. So those herring are all harvested in December, and uh, the CKNW radio station used to have a benefit, and uh, the herring would be caught and brought to the dock in New Westminster and sold for cheap. Yeah. And uh, we'd bring it to a home and fillet them out and pickle them and enjoy them with our beers. <laughs> pickling Christmas party? Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah, pickling party. Yeah, we'd all stink. Yeah. It's like a sausage Stinko. Yeah. Stinko night. Yeah. <laughs> so is it worth the effort? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, the camaraderie's worth it. The only thing that's missing is uh, we didn't harvest them ourselves. Yeah. That yeah. part would have been good too, but that's okay. Yeah, that was Jeff's advice. He's like, you know, there's there's um there's a community of people that are really good at pickling herring and you should just go down there uh and buy it from the Ukrainians sure. and pickle it. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a whole lot oh, yeah. easier. He says once you've done it once you might find that you don't want oh, to. Oh I bought again. good pickled herring, can you believe it, at Walmart. Oh yeah. They don't offer it anymore. It was some plan in Richmond started making it and they had it on the shelves was good and then it disappeared but uh, getting herring buying herring for <clears throat> for our evening of pickling is getting difficult they don't always have the herring are not all, always available to be harvested they're not there yeah they're not yeah they're well they're they're not there right now they're right now apparently we were well Jeff did some psyching around trying to find the herring for us and he's on the island so he apparently the the herring are way up by well up by where you grew up up by Comox and they haven't mm -hmm. come down into where they well they lately they've been spawning right down as far as French Creek and and uh yes yeah we should talk about something other than herring because I don't think people are I want to talk about salmon yeah okay well so what neat so what I love talking about with you Larry is it like how old are you now? 81. 81. Okay. So, you know, you, you have this, you know, and you've been out on the water and in the forests, um, you know, for, you know, since you were a kid. And, and, and it's always so interesting to hear your, you know, what you've experienced in the past, because I think it's important for us, like, you know, my benchmark for a rich and healthy sea is, you know, from the 1980s when I was a kid, you know, f you know, fishing and hanging out. But that's, a whole, you know, your benchmark is 20, 30 years before that. Yeah, you're only half my age, kid. Yeah, exactly. So, so what was it like, you know, growing up in some of the richest waters in... Uh, well, no different than today. Um, well, I'd you're, say very you're, different. You're experiencing wonderful things in, out there in nature, fishing and hunting. And uh, I did the same thing. And when I was young, I heard all the stories told to me by my grandfather, my father, stories that they told me about their youthful experiences out there hunting and fishing. Well, in my grandfather's day, there were no regulations. If you wanted to go catch a steelhead or two, my grandfather just walked uh, 15 minutes down to the Puntledge and, and caught a couple. They were there. And uh, then a dam came and wiped out the Puntledge, pretty much. And not just the steelhead, but the Tyee, the Comox Tyee, the biggest on the coast, bigger than Campbell River Tyee. How big were they? How big oh, they, were the over, they were bigger than... Uh, Campbell River Tyee because uh, um, we used to see them uh, mounted 
and hanging on the walls of Vancouver Aquarium. I don't know where they are now. Maybe there's some still there, but they haven't been to the aquarium for a long time. But uh, no, the Comox Tai pool was uh, empty, emptied after, uh, for within a few years, it took a while, but after that dam was built, that river changed, and no matter how the hatchery tried to do it, couldn't duplicate the wild What salmon. Mother Nature could do, yeah. Hatcheries have that flaw. They, they don't replicate the genetics the same way the wild salmon, wild streams do in the wild environment. They don't make as tough a fish. And uh, no, and they, they don't adapt to their foreign streams nearly as well as they were adjusted to their home streams. But uh, this isn't really what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about memories going back. So I started fishing and hunting at the age of five. And I was lucky because uh, my father and my grandfather both really enjoyed taking me out with, uh, with my hunting. I was double lucky because my grandfather was the blacksmith in the community and he knew just about every landowner and certainly he knew every farmer who would give him permission to hunt. So there I went with him. And uh, before I could pack a gun at five, six, seven years old, I would go and stay at his home and my grandparents' home in town. And in the morning, we get up super early and away we go. Yeah. And I still remember fishing, doing that with mostly with my father. My grandfather was not an ocean fisherman. He fished steelhead and trout in the rivers, he, was, he loved to fish fly. So I fished with him too. But uh, my father, he was more commercial. Uh, he served on Chief Billy Asu's Saner in, uh, I think he said 31, 1931. But that, that Saner was on the, on the $5 bill. No kidding. Yeah. Is it still on there? Uh, no, the bill changed. I'm talking about the old one. Yeah. Before our currency changed, if you look for an old fiver, you'll find that boat on there. And it was, I forget what number it was from the cannery on Quadra Island, but it was, it was owned by the cannery and, and the chief was the skipper. Hmm. And uh, my dad was fishing off Quadra with his rowboat and he was fishing commercially, and this, this was during the Depression, and he was taking his catch to the cannery and where he was selling it, and he was, he was doing okay. Huh. And he was solo, he had a hand line, oars, that's it. And you had to watch the tides there because they're pretty tricky. And uh, that's, that's what he did, and then the chief saw him rowing out there against a pretty stiff tide, and it so happened that the chief lacked a good skiffman. Didn't have any First Nations, none of his members, I guess, were available for the skiff. And he, he was going out shortly, so he invited my dad. Dad jumped at the occasion. So that was his first experience. Uh, How old would you, would you have been? He was in his 20s then. So I, don't know, I don't know exactly how old he would have been. I've forgotten, yeah. but uh, he, he was still a young man, and he built his own rowboat out of wood from the beach. <laughs> Beaches were loaded with good logs then. So he told me he hand-split all of the pieces that he needed to make a clinker rowboat. No way. Yeah. All kinds of them did. And uh, I've gathered some of that information, but lost an awful lot of it. But uh, there was a community right on the beach there during the Depression of uh, men from all over, I guess, the world. And they built their own boats and went out fishing because they could make a living selling their salmon to the cannery that it was right there on, on Quadra Island at Kwathiaski Cove. So anyway, um, because my dad had this urge to fish, and loved 
eating it, eating salmon. Um, he built boat and he launched it, kept it at a little beach near Merville. Yeah. Kitty Coleman Beach. And, uh, and it was 12 feet long and it had a five horse Briggs and Stratton engine in it and a shaft. And a number of them had clutches. They were just hand levers. You could kick it into neutral. There was no reverse, just forward. And the engine just idled. And if you wanted to get out to the fishing grounds a little faster, you just up the throttle slightly and it would go probably double trolling speed. That would be about it. Yeah, so, like so six knots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we'd go out there. So I'd sit on the bow of the boat. We'd launch first light in the morning. And it was always nicer weather. They never went out there and anything. No white caps. Nobody went out and fished white caps. It was uh, calmer water. But we'd go out there with all this other horde of boats. There used to be up to about 30, 32 of these putt-putts. Um, kept at Kitty Colon Beach. And most of the owners were forest workers, loggers, mill workers. And uh, this was a part-time income job for them, was catching and selling their salmon. So we'd go out there early in the morning, uh, just at the break of day. And the kelp bed wasn't very far offshore, probably 150 yards, 200 at the most. And uh, just outside the kelp bed would be the herring boiling on the surface. And the gulls working the herring, diving down, catching herring, eating them. Just loads of birds all up and down the whole coastline from Comox to Campbell River. Now there'd be places where, okay, there's no, no herring, so there's no, no gulls, no birds. There'd be gaps, but nevertheless, lots of kelp, lots of birds, and diving ducks, sea ducks. There's every kind of mergansers, uh, cormorants, everything. Um, harlequins, just lots and lots of birds there. Uh, seabirds, no, no dabbling ducks, not like mallard or widgeon, teal. No, they're not there. They were, these, <laughs> these are all the sea ducks. Yeah. And they're eating on those herring. So I remember all this, and it, and it, it came to me, I was reminded this morning when I got an email from a politician on one of the Gulf Islands asking if... I had seen a decline in seabirds. Yeah. Well, certainly I've seen this decline, a huge decline, because the kelp beds are all gone. There's some kelp left here and there, but there's no thick kelp beds like there used to be. So we had a little pause there just to quiet down some of the background noise. So we had the, the kelp beds are gone today. and uh, So do you know what happened with the kelp beds? Sure. But not scientifically. Yeah. But there are a number of problems. We saw um, uh, uh, beam trawlers ripping the beds out when the, while they fish for dogfish. Oh. I witnessed that. Beam and trawlers. What's a beam trawler? Beam trawler was the, the was a, is a special kind of harvester that drags for dogfish, and huh. they were they were targeting the dogfish livers for the oil. Oh, okay. And that was back in the 50s and early 60s. Wow. And the dogfish were in along the kelp beds, and so they didn't wish to harvest kelp, but inadvertently, you can't help but snag some of that and rip it out. Mm. And the salmon fishermen in my group of elders, they resented that. They didn't like that damage to the habitat. So now the kelp beds have just slowly over the years disappeared. Yeah. And there's some reason for it, but I've not heard. Have you heard what the reason is? Well, I've heard that, uh, I guess, sea urchins eat kelp. And, uh-huh. yeah, or sea anemones, or sea... Sea or urchins. Sea urchins, or sea... Yeah. Anemones. I, I don't okay. know. Uh, Anchors urchins. But I have heard that the uh, sea otters keep the 
urchin populations in check. Right. So, so what the sea otters are the first thing to go because they um, are valued for their fur and and uh, right. are somewhat sensitive to uh, ecosystem change as well as the as the fur trade. And then once they were gone, then the the the, the uh, sea urchin population increased, which then put additional pressure on our on our on our uh, kelp beds. So something like that. Well, the, the fish were plentiful there when we had the kelp, we had the herring, we had the salmon and the birds, and we had everything all intact. And it was all obvious when we putted out from shore from the little harbor at Kitty Colon Beach and uh, went out there. And uh, we had killer whales, all kinds of them. And uh, the killer whales were really resented. And so a lot of the anglers carried firearms. Uh, I remember one, one fellow shooting with a 303 at the whales. No way. And, oh yeah, this is common. Fishermen shot at everything. Wow. And uh, because they're the enemy, they're, they're trying to harvest these fish. And when the, when the blackfish came, the killer whales were called blackfish. They weren't called orca. So when the blackfish came, um, they were resented because the salmon know they're there and the bite would go off. So yeah. the, the, the salmon are worried about the predators that are, that are obviously present. Yeah. So uh, we're preying on them, but they don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so now we go out there and here's this bountiful scene and the, fi the fishermen would go out in the morning and fish the morning and the bite. And if it's a weekend, they come in and play horseshoes, have lunch, drink coffee, chat, relax, have a good time, and then go out again for the evening bite. That's the way mm -hmm. it was. Morning and evening, you fish. There's only a few hardy types that would stay out there and fish all day long mm -hmm. in the summertime, because that's too long. Did they fish and, tides, tide changes? No, not so much. That's no. interesting. Hey? No, just go out there early in the morning. Not huh. that I know of. Yeah. Like, but I wasn't a top angler, okay? I never was top. I'd catch fish. Yeah. But the top anglers would catch 30 salmon in one evening. Yeah. They'd come in with 30 in the boat and dress them out and sell them to the packer. And the packer was one guy with a three-ton truck with a load of ice yeah. in boxes. And huh. he'd just bury them in ice. So, so for so, reference, like on a 30-fish evening, yeah. how many cases of beer could you buy with whatever he gave you for your 30 fish? Well, the fish, if, if, if I can recall approximately, the fish were about 20 cents a pound, but they went down to 10 cents, okay, okay. depending on the condition. Now, these are prime troll-caught red Chinook that sold for the highest price. Okay, so these are and, 12 to 20 pounders yes, each or something like yes. that. So you could say that each fish is, you know, worth yeah. And the bucks. pink and the whites sold for far less. The whites were low. And uh, the, 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 the coho sold for a lower price than the Chinook. Mm, it's not as fatty. So, yeah. so it's not, not quite as good. So there are only the two species. Sure, there's some, there's some pinks. There's some other species, but they're not common. So it was, it was coho and Chinook. And uh, my dad was not a 30-number guy. Okay, hold on. He, but I, what I, what the part that we're missing here cause we, is, so you get 2 to $4 per fish, depending on the price. Yeah, yeah. What can you buy for 2 or $4 well, back in this day? Uh, the labor rate then was a buck and a quarter an hour. If you went and got a oh, job okay. in town, working on a house or working... Some kind of a reasonably paying job, you got a buck and a quarter, a dollar fifty. In 1956, I landed my first good union job, and I made a buck ninety an hour in Elk Falls Pulp and Paper Mill. Okay. So that was a top job for a kid. Okay. Because I was 17. So we'd say just a relative rate is like 25 bucks an hour or something. Oh, forget 25 an hour. What are you talking about? Today is well. Today, 25 dollars an hour is nothing. But it didn't exist then. Yeah, of course. So they're trying to get a relative scale of what an evening worth of fishing would it be worth. So a couple hours. Of, oh, they at, could at make the more. Mill. Could make more in a couple or three hours in the evening fishing than they could logging all day. Okay. Yeah, so that's possible with some of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's why they fished. Yeah. Okay. 
Oh yeah, but the, the, fish it didn't all, all go like that. Yeah. Like some days you go out there fishing and you fish morning and night and you come in with four salmon. That's it. That's called fishing. That's what fishing is. Yeah. So okay. So, you're, but, so go. So so, you're, so, you're, so your old man, he wasn't one of the top fishers. No, he was average. Yeah. He could catch fish. Yeah. But he didn't have the finesse, and he didn't have the dedication. I can. Was he kind of like you? No, he wasn't as good as me. Because <laughs> <laughs> some might argue you don't have the finesse when it comes. <laughs> you fish with a couple guys that do have a bit of finesse on your on your boat. Well, they think they do. Well, yeah. You have to think that you do, right? Well, you have I to let think. them think. <laughs> <laughs> I fish with you too, Larry. <laughs> you have a lot more fun than anybody fishing, though. That's for sure. Yeah, I can fish, but when when they're in my boat, I don't have any choice. I have to let them fish. They fish my boat. They tell me how to turn the wheel, the helm. Yeah, yeah. And you you do. <laughs> they, yeah. they tell me to a little more throttle, a little less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is so Larry, Larry has got his uh, well Jeff Horsfield, uh, who's an ex-commercial fisherman, and then Peter, who's a who's been a fishing guide for big chunks of his life, and. And has also been a commercial fisherman and a dedicated fisherman. So, Larry on Larry's boat, he gets Jeff and Peter, his crew, and basically Larry's job is to sit there and reel the fish in after they find the fish, then get the gear out and catch them. Oh, they pass me. They're, they're really considerate because they pass me all the big ones. Yeah. Do they let you net the fish? Not really. Yeah, they do. I, I I pushed in for the netting. Showed them <laughs> showed them how to net. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so yeah. going back to fishing back in the day as a kid with your old man. Well, it was it was a a way of growing up on the water, and I observed these things. And if you're engaged at all, you can't help but see them. So uh, we saw what the fishing was, and I learned. Uh, right away, that uh, big Chinook can be caught in the middle of the day at 11 o'clock in the morning in deep, deep water, 200 feet, 220, 230. Yeah. Because my dad and all of them there fished with a cannonball. They all had deep lines. We call them deep lines. Yeah. And they were all handmade, and they usually had a clothesline pulley hanging on the back, but it was all steel wire, yeah. similar to the trolling wire that commercial trollers use today, or have been using for years, and uh, bobbers snapped on with the hook. And my dad always fished with just two bobbers because he couldn't stand working with four or five or six bobbers because most of the fish were always on the bottom one or two anyway. They'd yeah. So he didn't bother with the upper ones. Yeah. They're just a waste of time. So, but that's the way it is, Chinook fishing. And then with coho, that's different. Coho are in the top 50 feet, but yeah. you can catch them way right down the bottom too. But they're up in the top level. And so if you fish coho, you're not going to make as much money because the price was lower. So hardly yeah. anybody fished for them the commercial guys always wanted to go for the Chinook. And so that's what everybody loaded up on, was, was the Chinook. And the runs would come through um, Kitty Coleman, Bates Beach, all the way down through the inside to French Creek, all the way down the island. They'd come all the way f down uh, on their run, and maybe they were American fish, who knows? Nobody knew then. And, uh, and, and they were on their, on their way somewhere, and they would come through there starting April, May, June, and all summer long there'd be runs coming through, and you never knew when they're coming. But when they come, the word goes around, phone calls, and everybody mm. goes for their boats. Yeah. And so there'd be, at times, just about every damn boat out of there, and you know the fishing's got to be good. Yeah. And so everybody's happy. So would, so would you... Would everybody like get, take time off from logging and go fishing? No, they all went all went logging. If there was a job logging and they logged for the company, they had to go to the company. Okay, so they couldn't be like, "I'm not coming into work." Then no, fishing, no, no, no. That, that was never allowed. Then you'd you'd, you'd lose your job. Okay. There was a, there, there was a union. Yeah. And uh, 
everyone was active in the union, but they all knew what the limits were. So uh, now when, when, when I wasn't out fishing with my father, and he was working in the mill or he was working somewhere, uh, we stayed at the beach camping in a tent at the summertime. And Dad came back and forth. His home, while he went to work, was on the beach. And all kinds of families did that. The beach was packed with, with campers in the summertime, families. And so I fished from the beach. Yeah. I was one of the few kids who put on a swimsuit, walked out <laughs> there, and started catching uh, salmon with my deadly dick and my trout rod. I had a spinning rod. I had a Mitchell spinning reel for trout. Wow, could I cast away out there? I could go right out to the kelp line. Yeah. And, and just to but, clarify for the audience that doesn't know what a deadly dick fishing lure is, yeah. it's, um, it's, a, you got like a, it's a leaded, it's a, sh a shiny like lead sphere that you can fire out, cast out, and then it sort of, when you reel it in, it kind of flips and flops. And uh, yeah, but wouldn't want to. It's, a, it's an artificial lure and it's a spoon and it's tiny with a treble hook on it. It's not very big. It's for trout, really. Yeah. But it, it worked for uh, salmon. The, 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 the pinks and the coho, especially. The yeah. They're, they're on the inside, they're right in close. But the Chinook, not so much. I, I don't ever recall catching a Chinook from the beach. But I did catch a few of the other two species. And when the pinks are running, wow, lots of them there. And, uh, but this was, this was a, a, an aside. I really enjoyed that kind of fishing and then I had to get out in the water because I was limited by how far in I could wade. <laughs> so I built myself a clumsy little boat out of an eight foot piece of quarter inch plywood and two two by twelves. My dad <laughs> had a mill, I cut I grabbed two two by twelves off there and I made myself a punt. Yeah. And I had to, I had to put a, for a seat I ran it right down the middle and from one end to the other. Okay. With a support underneath the bottom. Okay. I had no frames, no ribs, nothing, just uh, um, like a barge with a bow on it yeah. and a square stern and uh, nail, the, nail and glued the ply, plywood to the... Yeah, we had glue. Don't worry, we no. had, we had <laughs> no, glue. No, no, but did it leak? Did you manage to make it water waterproof? No, no, it didn't leak. Really? It, it leaked when I leaned too far forward or back that it would come over. Yeah, that's not leaking. <laughs> that, that's a breach. That's it's not, not a not leak. A breach. Yeah. No, I'd swamp it. Yeah. So, uh, but it was... But it was summertime, so I'd go out there dressed lightly anyway, and usually a swimsuit on, just climb in there wet, and, and just the rod and a club. <laughs> and, and, and that's it, not even a net. And then I went out there, and I got to the kelp bed, and it's pretty dangerous out there. Well, there's currents and everything. There's currents and everything, and, but I survived. I, I was right there, and my family's keeping an eye on me anyway. So I learned some more. I learned and learned. And then as I learned, I, there wasn't a, there's not been a day in my whole life, uh, I mean a year in my whole life, that I've not gone salmon fishing out in the ocean. And it's just wonderful. Oh, it's good. And we still catch fish, but the fish are getting more and more difficult to catch, and we have to target uh, runs on the west coast of Vancouver Island now that are mostly American fish, American runs, except so we, for some runs that, like Nootka, we've got some exceptions. So when we but, say a targeting American fish, I think you know these are, these are um, fish that are been have come out of a hatchery in the states. They are, and, and most of them are marked. We know they're American fish partly because they're marked. Uh, they they clip the adipose fin, and they show up at a certain time and they feed in BC waters. So um, we basically you know sorry it's the West Coast. Fisherman tax and take take a few of the with the Columbia River fish is what we assume are the majority of the fish that we target. Then there's all kinds of hatcheries in Washington and Oregon. Yeah, and they 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 still uh, uh, value the hatchery, their hatchery system, and uh, the American hatcheries produce fish for us to catch off the west coast of Vancouver Island. 
because they're they're going home, mm -hmm. and uh, and and if, if we didn't have them, I suppose we'd have only fifty percent of the salmon to catch. I don't know. What don't even know. I don't even know what the percentage is. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that the scientists know, but they've probably got some uh, rough idea. But uh, no, the the in in uh, the mid '70s is when we bought property on Laskiti Island, and uh, Laskiti has been a wonderful place, and it was the, it was really fishy up until the end of 1996. And then from 96 onward, we lost our coho. They didn't return. So, so, so when I was referencing that place of abundance or that perspective of abundance, like I, I remember my father used to take me up to Secret Cove on the Sunshine Coast and we'd sleep on our little mirror craft boat and we'd fish from Secret Cove all the way over to Sangster. Uh, right. And, and ba you could basically run the whole length of it, and the whole time you wouldn't be out of sight of a jumping coho. That's right. Or many, many, and you would just decide between, like, even though you're seeing all kinds of coho jumping on, you'd kind of go towards where the, the fleet was, where there was, uh, like, hundreds and hundreds of fiberglass boats all That's right. trolling together off the south end of Laskiti, Texada, or off Sangster. Yeah. Which is all in view of your property on the, on oh, the there, south end of Laskiti. Our, 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 our place is in the perfect location because uh, we were close to uh, the fishing grounds, the sports fishing areas. The, the bottom end of Sangster Island used to have 30 to 50 boats all moored there on a, on a peak summer's day when the fish are abundant. And they, lots of them ran from Vancouver. They were charter boats yeah. that ran from Vancouver Harbor yeah. all the way up there to get there and anchor and fish with, for their clients. And they caught fish. And this is, this is, when you say anchor, so it's, they're mooching. They they're mooching, yeah. They're virtually all uh, mooching, whereas I, I mooched, and I'd have to run over to Secret Cove to get my live bait Yeah. if I didn't rake it. But raking was only uh, possible in the early days of Laskiti. That was like 77, 78, 79, 80. Once I got up into the 90s, Oh, the herring started dropping off, yeah. and I couldn't find them. I'm like you have to find the, the the school of herring. They're on the surface. You see them, and you can go to the bow of the boat, and you can put your twelve foot, fourteen foot rake down there, and catch a few. So spear so like, them on the on yeah. The so needles. A herring rake. What does a herring look like? Well, you've got a whole a whole bunch of needles all along this narrow piece of wood. Tiny little nails. Tiny tiny. Yeah, I built mine, my father built his, and I've now got the two of them. I've got, they're both at Laskiti hanging on the wall. I haven't used them in years and years and years because you can go out there in the boat and look all day and not see any herring you can rake. Yeah, yeah. So back in the old days, this is a terrible expression, old days. I hate it. <laughs> uh, back in my day. Back, yeah. in, back in the years when herring were bountiful, you could just look around and see where are the birds. Oh, the birds are over there. So away you go for the birds. And now we've got, I had a modern fast boat, so it takes me no time to get to those birds. Yeah. And then I cut the engine down, I go right into the middle, and the birds all part, but there's the fish, and I can rake them. Yeah. And I'd rake them, and then i go out where the boats are all anchored. i okay. go back to the same well, salmon. Well, important, important step here is you, you'd rake them, and then you'd put them in a bucket or something with water in it, right? Well, so I just stay alive. Well, you have, to, you have to be at the bow of the boat, and then you have to rake along the side of the boat as deep as you can, because they're going to dive on you as soon as you, they see you from above, because they're certainly used to predators. So you, you rake them, and you can feel them, bang, 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 hit, hitting the, the needles on the rake, and they get impaled on there. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep sweeping up steadily. Don't hesitate, and don't move it backwards, or they all come off. Yeah. And they'll flip off. Yeah. They're just struggling, and they can fly off there. So as quickly as you can, you turn the rake into the over the inside of the boat and turn the rake down and shake it, and they all fall off into the boat. Yeah. And you do that two or three times, you've got enough to fish for the, for the morning, whatever. You, you, maybe one rake, you've got enough. Yeah. So now you go to the place you're going to fish. Well, how do you keep them alive? Or are they just flopping around? I don't, the I don't keep them alive. I oh. never did. 
Okay. Uh, it's, it's too difficult to keep them alive. Okay, okay. I strip casted with them. Oh, okay. So, so to begin with, I had just a trolling outfit, right? Mm -hmm. And trolling outfit works good with a knuckle buster reel. And the herring is out there with two hooks on it, one through the nose and another one through the back. Yeah. And it's on the leader. And the leader was whatever I used to be crazy and fish with, 12-pound leader. But I don't do that anymore. It's all 20 or, yeah. or even higher. Or 40, yeah. Yeah. So, but that's fishing differently. I was fishing with the reel now. I don't have any flasher on it, nothing. All there is on there is that herring and a half-ounce weight or whatever what ounce, small weight I need. Don't need a big weight. Yeah. And the weight is the rod length from the hook mm -hmm. and the bait. And then I just let it out. And the, 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 the current is there, the boat's yeah. moving. And I let this out. And if I want to strip cast, which yeah, I, I, I'm casting. So as soon as I let some out, I pull it all in, but I let it down on the floor. Yeah. And then I cast out and it all picks up off the loops, all come off the floor. And I cast that away out there and then I have to watch very carefully as it drops, it drops, it drops. I'm feeling the line, I'm feeling the rod because a big, the biggest of Chinook only touch it. They touch it, they mouth it, they don't really bite it. You'll feel them to touch, touch, touch. And then you feel, ah, I think he's got it. You go, ooh, <laughs> you set the hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you got him. Yeah. And because the, the Chinook are notorious for playing with the bait a little bit yeah, a little before they strike. Yeah. And they, they play with it, then they get it. And you, you just know this after you catch Chinook after Chinook after Chinook, it just becomes ingrained. And okay, we're good, fired it back up again, we dropped the mic. So uh, I had all this success strip casting and loved it. And uh, then along came Rex Field and his invention, his, um, oh, what do you call oh, it? What, yeah, okay. Well, what do you call that lure? <laughs> the buzz bomb? Yeah, the buzz bomb. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a lure that was similar to my dropping herring because the injured herring all drop. So you have to understand the relationship between the predator and the prey. The healthy predator is swimming away with the school, but the injured ones. Well, the healthy, yeah, the healthy prey swim away. The healthy prey swim away with the school, but the injured ones that are left behind because there's lots of accidents, so lots of injuries when those predators go s swiftly through a school of herring, they damage them. They're trying to hit them and whack them and, yeah. and cripple them. And then they turn around and go back and eat them. Yeah. So they're dropping. And so you have to uh, duplicate the drop. Yeah. That's the, the trick. The way the whole function of herring, like herring cruise around in schools, and then I, I've, been, I've been told that whether it's the birds uh, or the salmon, they almost kind of corral or herd the, the, the school of herring into a tighter and tighter ball. Yes. And then... And then the coho or the springs will drive right through the middle of the ball, yeah. slashing their tails out, yeah. trying to injure as many and knock out as many herring. And then the rest of the school of salmon cruise underneath and pick off those injured, crippled herring. Yeah. So a, n a number of bait or lures kind of try to replicate the look of a crippled up herring. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, once you have this experience and knowledge, and you take advantage of tides, the, the, the herring, the bait, likes to sit in a calmer water area behind a big rock. So if the tide's running, find out where this big rock is going to give them some cover. Yeah. Because they're just like steelhead in a river. If there's a big rock in a fast-flowing river, the steelhead's going to hide behind that rock. Yeah. Because you have to expend way less energy staying there, and you pick off the bugs, whatever food comes by. You just sit in your little mm -hmm. calm area behind the rock. Yeah, well, the herring do the same thing. All the fish do the same thing. So they hide. They, they move to the other end of the rock 
when the tide changes and goes the other way. Yeah. So fishermen all know this. You understand it as you work it. Well, actually, and, we don't all know it because it took me about 20 years of fishing before I understood oh. why we fish on a slack tide. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, it was interesting. We <laughs> talked about this because, you know, for a long time, we, we always were dedicated to fishing first thing in the morning and last thing at night, which is mm -hmm. still, mm -hmm. I mean, the waters are often mm -hmm. the most calm mm -hmm. then. There does seem to be a peak activity period. But I, now I, I, you know, I, I would, I don't even bother with the evening fishery if, if I don't have to. I, I'm always thinking about that slack tide because that slack tide seems to be the time that you must be fishing. Like, that's where we're going to catch the most fish is on a slack tide, whether right. it's at seven in the morning or two in the afternoon, I'm going to, yeah, yeah. there's always a... Well, I've, I have to differ because I've caught lots of fish when the tide's running its fastest, and that's behind the rock, huh. because I've searched for those rocks, okay? Yeah. And I've found big reefs off of Laskiti, and I know those reefs, and I know that the fish hang out at certain uh, times of the tide. Yeah. yeah. Not the day, not the daytime, yeah. not the hour, just the tide. So I would go out there, and sure enough, they're there. They're there every time when yeah. the tide is running like that. And so I would, I would just, for trip after trip after trip, I just went back to the same place. And the feed fish were always there, and the Chinook there with them. Yeah. And I, I put out a, a buoy, an anchor and a buoy, because it was only 30 feet on the reef. Yeah. 25 feet, 30 feet. Uh, and okay. I dropped my, and the tide's running, toward my boat yeah. from the reef to yeah. me. And I hook onto that, tie my bow onto that and let the amount of slack off that I need to get in 90 feet of water under my boat. Yeah. Let my <laughs> Rex field lure down, Yeah. bang, got one. Buzz bomb. Yeah. Buzz bomb. And then uh, sing Zilda. Yeah. Sing There's all kinds of them. Perkin Jensen, I, I tried all of them. And they all, they, all of them worked. So, but the trick is that buoy. So people would see me fishing there and they'd come and fish alongside all around me, but they don't catch anything because the salmon aren't over there. They're, They're behind hiding the behind this rock yeah. that I'm in front of, I'm behind of. So we, we were, I was there with my brother a couple of times and we'd limit out eight salmon, eight Chinook, and yeah. they'd see us. We'd catch one, we'd catch double, two on the same time. Let the bow line off, drift away, bring them in, and come back and tie up to our buoy. Yeah. And others were crowding in, trying to get, where, what is this? How are they doing this? Yeah. And then when we're done, I said to these guys, there's four of them in a boat, we'll leave this thing here. You tie up to it when, when we go off pulling in our salmon. You just move over here quick and tie up and you catch yours. And as soon as you get yours on, you let off because we'll be coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we had this thing going between the two boats. That's yeah. how plentiful the Chinook were yeah. under that spot at that given tide. So have you been back to this spot? There's nothing there. No way. And it's closed. I can't fish there. Oh, that's right. It's yeah. illegal. I can't even put a hook and line down there. Yeah. It's a rockfish conservation area. Yeah. So a bunch of big a bunch of areas in BC waters have been zoned as well, probably across Canada, I guess, in in, in uh, areas where we there's no hook and line fishing whatsoever in order to uh, maintain sort of rearing grounds for rockfish and ling cod to to then successfully breed and then theoretically that'll help maintain. The populations of rockfish, but that just happens to be right, right in front of your place. That there's a rockfish conservation area, which limits you from getting back to your spot. So, so there may well be salmon hanging out there, but we don't know, and we can never find out. So, do you remember uh, CKNW sports announcer Big Al Davidson? No, no. You don't, you're too, you're too, too young. young for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe I never. Oh my God, that's I'm aging myself. <laughs> anyway, Big Al. <laughs> He had a CKNW race boat out there. He's churning all over the waters of Georgia Strait, reporting to CKNW, to all the listeners in Vancouver area and BC, what the fishing's like, because he was giving Al's his, his fishing report. Yeah. And uh, he came zipping up to me, and I was the only boat fishing there, and I'd, 
I was anchored in my spot catching my fish, and he asked me how I'm doing. I said, not too bad. Yeah. And uh, he said, this is an odd spot to fish. He said, I've not seen anybody fishing here much. I said, no, this is one of my favorite spots, though. Yeah. And I can, he's got CKNW and everything there, so I know that the whole world's going to know about this yeah. if I tell him too much. So I didn't tell him very much at all, but he had his daughter with him, Kathy. Yeah. And I can remember her name because my wife's name's Kathy, right? Yeah. So uh, he and his daughter, and his daughter was in her teens then. That's quite a while ago. So uh, uh, he, he, I held up a couple of salmon. Oh, yeah. And away he went racing off because he'd been to the Finnerties of the Fagans, the north end of Laskiti, yeah. to check the anglers there. And now he's going to the south end of Sankster and Laskiti to check with the anglers there to see how they're doing. So in no time at all, I had company. <laughs> there were other boats. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd, he'd made a report on the radio about running into this guy fishing at Seal Reef. Yeah. Well, it's all closed now, people. Yeah. Closed forever, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, um, before the rockfish conservation area were, were put in, we were... I was with McKelvey and my dad, and we were, I can't remember what we were doing. We were, we were running over to, uh, um, uh, well, not to your place, but next door was McKelvey's uh, first wife. Yeah, and Terry's. Terry's place there. And I guess we ran over to Terry's, picked something up. But on the way in, we just, we stopped on your spot, your fishing spot, and we jigged up two uh, spring salmon in like a minute. And it was like it was very specific where, where he wanted to fish, and we dropped a year down and yep. two two springs on and two on two rods, and and we didn't yep. like. And I was I was just blown away that first of all that we could catch fish like this just like that, and then we were up to something else. So I I wanted to keep fishing because I never you know I never that was just amazing that just happened. And, but we were on to something else, so we were we were gone. And I, but I bet you that was the same spot that. Uh, oh, it'd be close to it. Yeah, same same. Yeah, but, no, it was a good spot. Hey, so, so, so now, I mean, we've sort of alluded to this, but I mean, fishing has changed and we've become more specific around how we fish and when we fish and where we fish. Um, do you think knowing everything you know now about how you fish, that you could be the 30 fish boat back in the day with your dad, you, taking all the technology and knowledge that you have around fishing back to when you first started? Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm asking. No, it's impossible. No, no, no. But if you go back in time with your buzz bombs. And oh, back here, in time, back to yeah, that. Yeah, with your knowledge now of fishing tides and currents oh, and everything. I don't think could, I'd have any trouble at all. I see what you're yeah, saying. Could, I, could no, you no. top boat on the water back then? Like, is there, was there, was there... Well, there's be only one thing that stopped me, would stop me. Like, uh, I, I think that I would want to come in. I don't think I could stay out there. Like, I remember one successful angler at Kitty Colon Beach... His name was Austin Odebust. And he'd go out there all day. Yeah. Daylight till dark. And he'd come in with those, those fish. He'd always come in with 20. Yeah. And uh, even on bad days, he'd come in with maybe a dozen. Yeah, yeah. Because, and, and then Frank Workman was another. There were a whole number of these um, anglers who were loggers. They worked other jobs. But when the forest closure came, they just turned to fishing, and they were dedicated. They had patience. As long as the sea was flat, they'd go way out there. We used to call it the cod banks. Yeah. And we'd go out to the cod banks, and there were no sounders then, not in the early days. And we'd line up points of land, like Point Holmes. There used to be a great giant tree away down by Buckley Bay somewhere, a big old growth You guys didn't have tree. GPSs? No. No, we didn't have all that how'd you fancy figure stuff. Out, how'd you cut no, around? no, this is a waste of time. <laughs> these iPhones and all these gadgets, you just miss the whole meaning of life if you just <laughs> surround your stuff with all those junk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Twitter. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> you were tweeting this morning, I saw. No, it's a good thing you haven't figured out Twitter. <laughs> I waste enough of my time already. So, so one of the things, well, we've got to wrap this up because we're coming up to an hour here. Um, uh, so, one of the things that's happened, like we kind of talked about this on a on our whitetail podcast that we did, like 
like clearly the numbers of white-tailed deer where we hunt are going down. However, we're still maybe having consistent success or in some years better success because we've become better at figuring out white-tail, become better hunters. And, and it somewhat masks some of the conservation concerns around, you know, big game populations because as, as a hunting community, we're getting better at it. And it's the same, you know, I suspect it's kind of the same thing with fishing. Like, you know, we seem to kind of go catch a lot of fish when we go fishing, but we're, as a fishing community, we're getting more precise about where, when, and how we fish. And it somewhat masks the colossal loss of, of, of habitat and, and this, and, and the, and of course, the fish and, and biodiversity that, that lives in our oceans. Um, do you do you see do you feel that's the do you see that with even within your own success consistently still filling oh, the freezer with fish? But that's what that's what works on me. It bothers me to see how we're destroying habitat. That's one of the things I've been working on as an individual is to try and save as much as we can. It's just. The, the the value of the dollar is top priority in our, our culture, and it's the primary motivation motiva motivating factor with all of us, me included. We're all the same, but it it can be destructive as hell. So um, technology, I mean, look at Cabela's. They they might be struggling, but it doesn't look like it. Mm -hmm. Cabela's and all these lines of sports, there used to be individual sports shops all over the place, and there's yeah. still some of them in Vancouver. Yeah. There's some good shops in Vancouver and elsewhere, but uh, the technology that's out there and it's forever being marketed and the flyers coming into the house and uh, the money that can be spent, I've spent lots of money on the pursuit of my fishing and hunting. So we're getting better and better I mean, at catching that last fish. Look, at it got me onto a farm I had to have a farm to raise my stock, keep my horses oh, and mules. Yeah, yeah. I had to have a diesel truck to pull a horse trailer. Oh yeah. I had to have all that pack equipment. And then I need a boat. I have to have a 21, 20, 21 foot aluminum with a nice Yamaha on the back of it. So this is and, slightly and a down big, it's a step up from your plywood punt. What you're saying? <laughs> it's outrageous. Yeah. But oh, do I ever look forward to it? <laughs> yeah. I well, can't believe I. I'm just like you at your age, and I'm 81. I still want to do all of these things and more. I know that I can't do sheep hunting anymore. I had to give that up 10 or 15, 20 years ago. But it's it's doesn't matter about giving up. I can still climb in my boat. I can still go out at dawn and fish. And lo and behold, I can still catch a salmon. Yeah. So they're out there still, but their numbers are dropping. Oh, yeah. they're dropping. But you know, the reference point for this too is, it, it is, so we talked about the reference point. Like you, your reference point goes back, you know, 70 years when you were 10 year old being out there at Bates Beach. And my reference point goes back to Secret Cove in the, in the late 80s. And then, but people now, like, they, you know, they go out of Vancouver or Harbor and go into House Sound and they catch one fish and it's a spectacular day. They, sure, they, yeah. You know, it's still oh, an yeah. amazing experience and just sure. connecting with the ocean and the fish and stuff. But... It's certainly great to have you on and just kind of talk, give us a little bit of well, perspective about the history and what it looked like years ago. Because I mean, we, I mean, and we'll never get back well, there, but you know. Well, I can tell you what bad is. <laughs> I saw bad when we did our Viking Riverboat cruise from Amsterdam to Budapest. Yeah. All along the river tour, there's three major rivers of Europe that we that that cruise runs. Oh, this along. is you and Kathy did it. Yeah. No, did it Catherine too. and I did this, and I'm not fishing. But I saw anglers sitting, waiting for the bite. Yeah. How long have you been waiting? <laughs> I asked them. Yeah. Well, some of them forever. Yeah. But no, they do catch the odd fish. I don't know. Whether. Nobody had any fish. I saw anglers, and they're always usually in groups, but they're solos. Yeah. And I couldn't believe the number of anglers that are fishing the river. Wherever we stopped, it didn't matter if it's, if it's Austria, Germany, uh, Hungary, Whatever nation, it doesn't matter. There's anglers, there's fishermen there, and they're mostly men. I didn't see a single woman. Huh. I kept waiting to see a woman, a female, fishing. 
but there, I, I didn't see one. So men they're, just have more time to waste, is that the point? They, they, they still have this primitive desire to sit and relax with a rod. And that's what they were doing. They weren't casting, they weren't doing it. They throw it out there and then just wait for the bite. Yeah. And there is a bite coming. They know it. They know it. As fishermen, all fishermen know, if you sit there long enough and there are a few fish in that water, yeah. you're going to get a bite. Yeah. So they have patience galore compared to us. Yeah. We think that we have long waits between bites. Go there. Yeah. Try that. Yeah, okay. Well, so we're not there yet, you, but you, and maybe we can comparison. Yeah, and maybe we can, you know, get enough awareness around this kind of stuff and thank, thanks for I, yeah, I know you think that's hopeless, but I'm off to I'm off to the um, species sportsman show and I'm going to spend the next Well, thanks, Dylan. Yeah. Um, it's a lot always fun talking to you, Larry. I think we should try and do this because I think that we could have a lot of fun talking about hunting and, and uh, you've got some great stories in your catalog that, I, that I've been able to hear a few times, but it'd be great to record them, if anything, for the, just so that, um, yeah, we got them. Well, recorded. I think it's important for future generations to listen to what older people have to say. I know that it, it's highly respected in the indigenous groups. <laughs> Not so much in ours. <laughs> no, no. I can't get my grandkids to listen to me at all. Yeah, well, I enjoy it, Larry. Anyway, thanks for doing this. Um, we'll do it again real soon, and, and we'll, we'll get a few of these together. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Have a good day. Yeah, you bet.